If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 this morning. Matthew chapter 7 as we continue in our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Happy Father's Day to all of our fathers that are here this morning. What a tremendous uh, privilege it is to be a father if God has given you that privilege as he's given me the privilege this past weekend I was with my own father and we got to experience what a normal weekend was like in, in the Eldridge household which consists of 28 baseball games or approximately but it was a wonderful time to be able to be with family there, there really is no greater joy than I have to have been married to my wife Danielle for the last 20 years but secondarily to be the father of Hayden Luke and Jonathan 13 11 and 7 and, and Dawson thank you for the great privilege of being able to encourage me to invest in in my own children and what a great privilege it is to serve not only here at Dawson but to be able to be on Father's Day to be able to be a father and to be able to be present in, in my own children's lives. And so I am thankful that you are here today. And I, I'm reminded of a experience that happened to me a few weeks back. I, I didn't hear the entirety of the conversation. If you would say I, I was sort of pastorally eavesdropping in the conversation. I, I, real quick, one day at the end of the day, Danielle called me and said, I need you to go by one of our favorite restaurants to pick up dinner on your way home. And so I stopped by a little diner that probably very few of you have heard of called Chick-fil-A. And so as I walked into Chick-fil-A, the line was uh, in the drive-thru was just way too long. And so you have this app, you can pull out the app and then you go inside and you can uh, pick up your food right there at the counter. And so they were making my food and there was a mom and it seemed to be a daughter. It was, uh, it, it was a daughter who they were having this conversation. And so I heard what the mom said to the daughter that kind of struck my attention. She said, honey, your dad and I, we're finished talking about this. He's way too old for you, and he is not the right one for you. To which the daughter, without any hesitation, said, you are so judgmental. You know, the Bible says, mom, judge not lest you be judged. So in that moment, I walked over and I said, I, my name is David Eldridge. I'm the pastor at Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but this is very convenient that you're talking about this because in about two weeks, I'm going to be preaching on Matthew chapter seven. Actually, I didn't say any of that. What I did was I got my food and got out of there as quickly as possible. <laughs> thanking God the entire time that I have three boys and I don't have a daughter that I would have to look her in the eyes and say, when you show me your college diploma, then we can talk about you dating. I'll never have to have that conversation. But that conversation is a conversation I guess a lot of moms and dads have with their daughters. And if you don't even have daughters or if you have sons, you all can relate to, even if you don't have children, that thought. Who, who are you to judge? The Bible says you're not supposed to judge. And in some respects, there is an accurate quote without the right context. Matthew chapter 7 says a lot. You can see in your copy of God's Word, starting in verse 1, the Bible says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgments you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 is a passage that has been misused and abused. And in many ways, it becomes sort of this mantra that we as Christians are to adopt the motto of planet fitness, which is a judgment-free zone. Can we make, can you even exist in life without some type of discernment, without some type of judgment? Is Jesus forbidden this? Leo Tolstoy, the Russian novelist, centuries ago read the Sermon on the Mount and very ambitiously said that this passage of Scripture absolutely kind of forbid any type of judicial system. So lawyers and judges had no place because of what Tolstoy said was going on with this passage here. Uh, most people don't take that type of aggressive interpretation of this passage. Most of us would be like that conversation at Chick-fil-A where, where there, there, there's a, a glimmer of familiarity where we, we say, well, are we ever supposed to judge? Now, if you were open the curtains of this passage, you would see that it isn't that Jesus is saying that we cannot make judgments. Um, actually, in the very passage that we read, if you move from verse 1 to verse 6, what does Jesus do? Well, he talks about judgments that are made. Do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The discernment and judgment is a part of what Jesus is commending in the very words and context of Matthew 7 verse 1. If you open up the curtains even a little further, you'll go to verses 15 through 16 of Matthew chapter 7. And we'll read, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus again tells us that a part of our duty is to do some type of fruit inspection. That there are ravenous wolves that are false prophets that will teach you and lead you astray and you will be able to recognize them by the judgment that is made, the discernment that is made by you looking at the fruit of their life, the fruit of their speech, the fruit of their action. So again, in this passage, now again, if you were to go back to these curtains and, and open them even further out of the Sermon on the Mount and you were to look in the New Testament, you'll see clear teaching that tells us the role of discernment and judgment that will be made in a person's life. Romans 16, verse 17, you see it on the screen. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And notice what Paul says, avoid them. So again, if we're going to be fair to the whole counsel of God, you cannot be a Christian without some type of judgment. 
Whether you're an employer or an employee, whether you're a father, you're a mother, whether you're a student, uh, judgment is something that we need. We need good judgment. We need moral clarity and moral discernment. Now, this goes in the face, I think, of, of the prevailing cultural winds of our society. We, we live in a culture that wants to, to sell you the product that in actuality, there is no category of good and evil, that there's no real category of right and wrong, and that the the truth is, is only in the eye of the beholder. And so what is right for you is right for you, but that doesn't mean it's right for the other person. What's wrong for you is wrong for you, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong for the other person. And, and scripture is clear as we read it as Bible believing Christians who oftentimes in our culture, you'll hear sort of a a lazy critique. Oh, Christians are so judgmental. And certainly there is a place that that is true. But increasingly in our culture, what, what is being said is, is Christians read the Bible and they actually believe the Bible and the Bible has categories in it that are not open to your interpretation if it's right or wrong. Jesus is not looking for your vote in an opinion poll about what he thinks about gossip and greed. He's not waiting for your opinion or your clarity about what he thinks about materialism and racism. You know, there there are certain things that God's word is spoken of and is spoken of in clear categories that are right and wrong, good and evil. And so to be a Christian in an increasingly morally confused society, there are going to be times where we stand in God's truth and say, hey, I I like you and I want to have a relationship with you. But if you're asking me to say what is wrong is right, I can't go there. And I, I don't have to be upset about that. I don't have to be angry about that. But I can't capitulate truth solely for us to be able to be on the same page with what I know to be is wrong. So, so in our culture, there are times where we will make judgments, but what does Jesus then condemn in this passage? If there's a place for moral discernment, what he condemns is the spirit behind that person where, or they're not making a judgment, but they're actually being judgmental, judgmentalism. I love D.A. Carson, who's a New Testament professor at Trinity Evangelical outside of Chicago. And he says, judgmentalism is a sinfully critical spirit. Notice that sinfully critical spirit, a condemning attitude. It's an attitude that looks for the worst in others. It assumes the worst motivations. It's an attitude that ultimately leads to idolatry because how are you not like God and how am I not like God? I'll tell you one way that we're not like God is that God is omniscient and we are not all-knowing. And judgmentalism is where we feel the need and we feel the entitlement to be able to peer into the depths of one's motivation and with crystal clarity say, I know why they said that. I know why they did that. This is what Jesus is condemning. It's when we play the role of God. Now, Jesus is saying, move away from that. As a follower of Christ, I'm calling you beyond judgmentalism. But we ask why? Well, this passage is clear. We are called to move past judgmentalism because we're not the ultimate judge. Verses one through two, judge not 
that you be not judged. For with the judgments you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is making the rhetorical statement here that ultimately we are not called to be the judge and jury of our fellow men and women. That, that we're, we're, that there's not a job opening for Lord and Savior that God is looking to fill in your power or my power. That there is one who sits on the throne and ultimately every one of us in this room will bow before him. There's not a single person in this room that will not give an account to the Lord and judge in the end, whether we meet him in his second coming or we meet him in our death, every thought, every action, every word, we must give an account for. And this is the verdict for all of us that we are guilty, that we are not perfect, that we fall short of the 100% perfection of our judge and of our Lord. But praise God, I have some good news to share for you. And that good news to share with you is this, that we have an advocate who stands in our stead. In our imperfections, there is one who is perfect, and that is Jesus Christ. And while our sin is Uh, covered over with the blood of Jesus, the ultimate judge sees not our imperfections, but sees the perfection of his son. And in light of him being our advocate, in light of what he gives you and what he gives me in the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ, So we have the ability to not stand before the judge because we will still stand before the judge as Christians. But notice how our motivation is different. We still pursue righteousness as believers. We still pursue holiness as believers, but we don't pursue it in in the hope that at the end of our life, our good works outweigh our bad works. And that's what's going to get us into a right relationship with the judge. That's what's going to get us into a right relationship with our Lord. No, the right relationship is found in the one who has lived a perfect life and has died a saving death. And so in light of what he offers you in, his un, in, in the unmerited grace and undeserved righteousness that we receive by faith, so then we are called, we are propelled to serve him out of gratitude and we still will answer to him as our Lord and as our judge. But we're freed to not have this overwhelming fear of that day, but we're able to say, no, I have fallen short, but he has stood in my place. I have sinned, but he is sinless. I am imperfect, but he is perfect. Now, John Stott the wonderful rector of all souls in London said that when we go into that temptation of judgmentalism, ultimately what we're doing is we are playing the role of the Lord and of the judge. Notice his quote here where he says, Stott does, that the secret of our relationship with one another and the Christian church, especially when we have our differences, is this fact. Jesus Christ is Lord. To despise or to stand in judgment on a fellow Christian isn't just a breach of fellowship. It's a denial of the lordship of Jesus. I need to say to myself, who am I that I should cast myself in the role of another Christian's lord and judge? 
I must be willing for Jesus Christ not only to be my Lord and judge, but also my fellow Christians' Lord and judge. I must not interfere with Christ's lordship over other Christians. So notice as we look at this passage here, we're freed from judgmentalism because we're not the ultimate judge. Your opinion isn't the ultimate opinion. Your opinion is not the omniscient opinion. We are, we're frail in our opinion. So we're not the ultimate judge, but more than that, we're freed from judgmentalism when we realize that we are not perfect. Notice the clarity of this illustration in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's a vivid image here. And the imagery is absurdity. The image is is one that when Jesus originally gave this teaching, the original disciples would have laughed at it. It was comical. It's the idea of a person having crystal clarity to be able to see the little sawdust speck in a brother or sister's eye while a two-by-four is coming out of their own eye. And what Jesus says is, is that we're called to realize our own shortcomings And then when we realize what we've received, we are more empathetic and we extend grace because grace has been given to us. And we're empowered to show patience and kindness and love and gentleness to others who are sinners in need of grace, just as we are sinners in need of grace. Because none of us earn a relationship with our Heavenly Father, it's all gift, it's all grace, then that empowers us to not make other people earn To earn a relationship that they cannot earn. Every interaction that you have with someone is going to be an interaction of a a sinner saved by grace, uh, loving and responding, or being impatient with another sinner saved by grace in the context of Christian relationships. I oftentimes tell couples in the midst of premarital counseling that you might as well go ahead and pack all of your baggage and carry it with you down the aisle because ultimately, no matter how well you clean up, groom, and no matter how beautiful you are in your pure dress there, bride, you are two sinners saying I do to each other. And the secret to marriage isn't over time I'm going to be able to make my sinner perfect. I tell you, that, that, that is a recipe for heartache in marriage. When you feel that your role is to be the savior of your husband, or you feel that your role is to be the savior of your bride. Your bride doesn't need a savior. She has one that can only qualify for that. Your husband doesn't need a savior In you, he has one that can qualify in that. That's not your role. That's not my role. So our role is to love with patience. Our role is to see our own imperfections. You know, our Savior models this so beautifully. Notice notice the balance in this passage. Notice the passage doesn't say, take the log out of your eye while ignoring the speck in your brother or sister's eye. Notice that the passage says, admit your shortcomings. Admit that you have a log of a two by four of sin that that you realize and you admit. 
And as you admit your shortcomings and you don't have this posture of arrogance and moral perfection, but you realize that you are a sinner saved by grace, they are times, again, where it is appropriate to say, hey, there is a speck and that speck is hurting. That speck is, is, is a, a breach of a relationship. And you notice who models this for us beautifully in, in your margin. You, you can really write John chapter 8. Because here's, here's this beautiful picture of a woman called in adultery that is brought by the religious leaders before the feet of Jesus. And notice in this moment where all the religious leaders gather their stones to, to hurl at this quote-unquote sinner called in adultery. And it's in this moment that Jesus stoops down, he writes in the sand what we do not have, the knowledge of what he wrote. Oh, there's all kinds of speculation, but what we do have is his words. And he says to each and every one of them, hey, all of you, well, you know what he says? All of you that don't have a log in your eye, go ahead and cast the first stone. The oldest to the youngest, drop their stones, realizing that they are sinners. And it's in that moment that Jesus says, look around you. Who, who is here? still stone you. And then he says these words, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Do you see the beauty of Jesus's model? He he models grace and also truth. See, there's always a temptation in your life to be all grace Oh, adultery doesn't matter. Sin doesn't matter. Go and live as you please. And if it feels good and you can justify it, it's okay. That's not what Jesus does. He says to this woman, yes, you can receive my grace, but he also empowers her, what? To say, there is a speck. There is a speck in your eye. Go and sin no more. And the temptation oftentimes in the Christian church is to be all truth, all truth, all truth, shouting, Without the beauty of grace, or to be all grace without truth. And so here we have in the Sermon on the Mount this beautiful picture of the balanced Christian life that it is much easier for us to see the perfect incarnate Son of God model this than it is for us to be able to live this. Because what? We are always vacillating back and forth and we will imperfectly follow after our Savior. But there is a place for grace and there's a place for truth in your dealings with others. So we admit our shortcomings And in our interactions with others, we don't start at a place of moral perfection and moral superiority, but we also don't ignore the truth of sin in the relationships within the church, with the relationships at home, the relationships with friends. And so we admit our shortcomings, and then we also realize, you know, we realize this truth that judgmentalism is just the extension of a much deeper issue in our own soul. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying because you could leave this sermon and you could hear what I'm trying not to say. You could hear me saying, stop being so judgmental. Stop it. 
You can hear me sort of chiding you. You're tempted to be this, stop doing this. But what I want you to hear is, is judgmentalism is, is, is really an extension of a much deeper spiritual issue. And so what we want to do is, is not see the weed that has sprouted above the ground, but we want to go to the root of it in our soul. We want to ask the Holy Spirit as a, as a surgeon who is precise to be able to, to do a, a little bit of, of moral and spiritual surgery to say when we are tempted to judge mentalism, what does it show as a deeper issue in our own soul? If you're driving in your vehicle today and you happen to look down and the light shows on that says check engine light and you say, well, I'm in a hurry. You stop by a, a, a mechanic and you say to the mechanic, listen, I don't, have, I don't even have time to cut my vehicle off. I don't have time to pop the hood. What I need you to do is I need you to get this check engine light off my dashboard. It, it annoys me. I don't like to see it. And the mechanic says to you, well, the only way that I can do that is by asking you to shut off your vehicle, to pop the hood, because the reason that light is on is because there's something under the hood that is causing that indication to come on. And so it is with you and me. When judgmentalism shows forth in our life, is it an indication that we need to ask the Holy Spirit to pop the hood of our soul and to do that type of searching in us. Judgmentalism oftentimes is rooted in jealousy. We're looking at social media postings. And the first instinct that we have is to think the worst of a person that we see. And oftentimes the worst motivation of that person's intention is rooted in they have something that I think I need and I'm jealous that I don't have. Sometimes judgmentalism, it, it, it shows forth in your family life when there's the root of bitterness that it springs forth out of. Unforgiveness for a family member. It very well may be five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago, there was something that was said, there was something that was done and that's never been dealt with. There's bitterness and there's unforgiveness. And the only way that you can see that family member at Thanksgiving or at Christmas or the few times that you see them is to think the worst of them, to think the worst motivations of what they say and what they do. And it's oftentimes springing forth from the root of bitterness and unforgiveness. There are times where judgmentalism springs forth from pride and self-righteousness. So I'm here to tell you not stop being judgmental. Because what does that do? It's just getting the, the extension of the weed from above the ground, but we've got to go to the root of it and we've got to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us, is it a, a root of bitterness? Is it a, a root of, of pride? Is it a root of self-righteousness? Is it a root of unforgiveness that I need to ask you, Holy Spirit, to shine forth in so I can see the check engine light of my soul shining forth and ask you, God, to do that work in my life? D.T. Niles was a wonderful missionary that once said that the extension of the gospel, if you were to define it, was one beggar telling another beggar where he or she found bread. 
You know, that transforms in many ways. Is that an exhaustive definition of the gospel? By no means. But is that illustrative of what you've received and what I've received? Yes. We are all beggars in need of the bread of life. None of us have deserved to find it. And so as we as beggars have found through the power of the Holy Spirit, the very bread that if we eat of, we will never hunger again. So it empowers us to be transformed in the way that we view people, that we work with, that we live with, that we go to church with, that at times there's a temptation to see them through the worst lens, the worst motivations. And it's in those places that we realize that all that we have received is gift. And what we are called to do is to extend the gift of grace to those that we come in contact with, those who need what? They they need patience. They need love. They need kindness. They need a person who will look at them and extend to them grace and truth. May we, Dawson, be those kinds of people. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to you this morning grateful for your word, a word that speaks to our hearts. There are none of us in this room that stand over this passage saying, oh, we've passed through this stage and season of life. Judgmentalism creeps into all of our hearts. At times it makes a home and can really color the way we see many people that are close to us. So we ask your Holy Spirit, even now, Lord Jesus, to do that supernatural work, to forgive us of where we fail you, to help us to be able to see what very well may be through the power of the Spirit, a a deeper spiritual issue that needs to be unearthed, confessed, repented of and to receive your fresh your fresh work your fresh power Lord I thank you for the great privilege of being called children of the most high God and may today be a day that we choose through your spirit to live in forgiveness and in love and in patience and in joy and kindness the very fruit of a spirit filled life It's in your name we pray, amen.